History is weird sometimes. There have been so many odd stories I've come across while researching, and I keep shelving all the best ones that I think you'll like. I think it's time to open up the strange history box and share a few of these wonderful nuggets with you. I'd like to do this in two parts, otherwise this would be one hugely long episode, and I've learned people seem to prefer half-hour-ish episodes to longer ones. So today, we're going to talk about three historical oddities. First, a jockey that stayed in a horse race despite overwhelming odds. In this case, overwhelming is actually a bit of an understatement. After that, we're talking shipwrecks. In particular, a woman who survived not one, but three of the 20th century's most famous. And finally, we'll make our way to 19th century South Africa, where we'll meet a baboon that was better at his job than most of us are today. By the way, huge shout out to Benjamin, my newest patron on Patreon. Benjamin, you are the stuff history podcasts are made of. And a huge congrats to everyone for making it to 2021. Getting through 2020 should be something we all get to put on our resumes. This is the first episode of the new year, so I hope it finds you well and full of hopeful possibilities. Now, let's get into some history. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Belmont Park in Elmont, New York, just east of New York City, is one of the world's most famous horse tracks. Winning the Belmont Stakes gets you a third of the way to a U.S. Triple Crown, the highest possible achievement for a thoroughbred. Winning the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness Stakes will get you the rest of the way. But as of this recording, only 13 horses in the U.S. since 1919 have claimed such a historic victory. The horse that showed up to Belmont Park on June 4, 1923, was not destined to be such a champion. But she was going to go down in history for the race she was about to run. Her name was Sweet Kiss. She was a bay mare owned by a Miss A.M. Frailing. This wasn't the most important race of the year, but it still drew a crowd. It was a steeplechase, a kind of race where a horse and jockey have to jump over fences or obstacles on their way to the finish line. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, this kind of racing dates back to Xenophon, an ancient Greek military leader, philosopher, and historian in the 4th century BCE. We humans have been racing horses for a very long time. The name steeplechase comes to us from 18th century Ireland, where church steeples served as racing course landmarks for impromptu races run by fox hunters. These races are difficult and require a lot of stamina from both a horse and its rider. Sweet Kiss had been trained by Frank Hayes, a man who had spent his life working with horses. Hayes was more than a trainer. He was a jockey, too, though he had never yet won a race. Some sources say he was 22 years old for this race at Belmont. Some say 35. The further back you go, the more you'll find the sources don't always agree, and not much history existed on Hayes. 
at least not until this sultry day in June. Sweet Kiss was not the favorite to win, not by a lot. The favorite was a horse named Gimme, who seemed like a sure bet. Sweet Kiss was only given 20 to 1 odds. The horses, full of nervous energy, lined up before an eager crowd. Those who had placed their bets on Gimme were keen on seeing their horse race to victory and line their pockets with winning bets. The race began. The horses wound their way around the track, kicking up dirt and turf. The smell of horses, earth, and sweat would have been heavy in the nostrils of the closest spectators. As the horses each vied for first, the unbelievable started to happen. Sweet Kiss, ridden by a jockey who had never won a race, began to gain on the other horses. Then, before what must have been a roaring and unbelieving crowd, she miraculously pulled ahead. She and Gimme were neck and neck, and those sure bets began to feel not so sure. At the finish line, Sweet Kiss pulled ahead by a neck, and the 20-to-1 horse and jockey team against all odds were victorious on one of the most prestigious tracks in the world. We don't remember this story because a 20-to-1 odds horse and rider won out over a favorite. We remember this story because when Sweet Kiss flew over the finish line, her jockey was dead. Frank Hayes had died sometime during the race. He had somehow managed to stay in his saddle, and Sweet Kiss, a horse Hayes himself had trained, had still finished the race, gaining them both their victory. It wasn't until Frank tumbled from his saddle that anyone knew anything was wrong. The doctor, John A. Voorhees, rushed to the fallen jockey's side and pronounced him dead immediately, citing a heart attack. Hayes had finally won his first race. He just probably didn't get to live through to the end of it. It isn't certain at exactly what point during the race Hayes died, and it's speculated that the unflinching weight requirements for jockeys probably had something to do with his death. Even today, weight requirements for jockeys are extremely strict. If you race in the Kentucky Derby, for example, you can only weigh 126 pounds with your equipment, and that takes up about 7 pounds. That means a jockey can weigh at most 119 pounds. That's a little less than 54 kilos. For this steeplechase, jockeys could weigh 130 pounds, just under 59 kilos, but Hayes weighed 142 pounds. This meant he had had to lose 12 pounds in 24 hours. I don't know how that would be humanly possible without crapping your brains. <laughs> without crapping your brains out. <laughs> oh, jeez. According to an article from the Buffalo Morning Express, during the morning of the race, Frank ran for hours trying to jog off his surplus weight, and he wouldn't allow himself to drink any water. 
By the time he had climbed into the saddle, Hayes was exhausted, and his body was in dire straits. Some sources suggest the exertion and excitement from the race caused Hayes' heart attack, while others blame the strict weight requirements. It's possible it was a combination of both. There is a surviving photograph of Hayes riding Sweet Kiss in that race. The horse looks super spooked, and Hayes looks like he's just holding on, waiting for that finish line. His death was a shock to his fellow jockeys, and a hard one. Hayes was well-liked. An article from New York's Daily News described him as a favorite in the saddling room and stable, and it said he took great pride in his calling. And he really did give it his all, and not even death could throw him from the saddle. A steeplechase is a rigorous race, and the fact that Hayes stayed on his horse all the way until the end over all of those jumps at a gallop makes the big softy in me hope that he did get to cross that finish line, at least somewhat aware of their victory. Though I suppose we'll never know for sure. A week after the race, Hayes was buried in the same riding silks he wore during his first win. It's said that the horse Sweet Kiss was retired after that race at Belmont. No one was too keen on riding her after Frank had passed away while in her saddle. And from then on, it's said she was known by a new name. Sweet Kiss of Death. I don't know if Violet Jessup was a lucky or terribly unlucky person. Some call her unsinkable, some call her cursed. There's an old saying I'm sure you've heard many times that says lightning doesn't strike in the same place twice. We know that's not true, but we use the phrase when talking about something that just couldn't possibly happen a second time, a once-in-a-lifetime event. In Jessup's case, lightning did strike twice. Three times, actually. She was born in Bahia Blanca, Argentina, on October 2nd, 1887. She was the oldest child of Irish emigrants William and Catherine Jessup. Her parents had nine children in all, with six of them surviving. Not an unusual statistic for the day. The first time Violet experienced her signature mixture of luck and tragedy, she was very young. She was diagnosed with tuberculosis and given only months to live. She defied the odds, of course, and survived. At 16, when her father died of complications from a surgery, her mother, now a widow with six children, had to find work. She relocated the family to Britain and landed a job as a stewardess for the Royal Mail Line, or Royal Mail Steam Packet Company, that would eventually take over the White Star Line in 1927 to become the world's largest shipping group for a while. While her mother worked, Violet attended a convent school. However, at 21, when her mother became ill, she left school and decided to follow in her mother's footsteps by becoming a stewardess herself. I learned while researching this that today, the term stewardess is considered to be a bit derogatory. It's been replaced with attendant or, in the case of cruise ships, ship steward or ship attendant. I only use the word stewardess here because that's the word Violet herself used in her autobiography. 
So if you are a steward or attendant, I mean, absolutely, no offense. I actually applaud the incredible amount of patience you must have in order to deal with cranky, traveling humans. A patient Violet herself must have had. Violet's first job started in 1908 on a ship called the Orinoco, another owned by the Royal Mail Line. Eventually, she began working for White Star Line. She was reluctant to work for them at first because their passengers had a reputation for being particularly demanding. She also didn't like the idea of sailing through the North Atlantic since its cold waters were known for their bad weather conditions. Despite these doubts, by 1911, she was working 17-hour days for White Star Line, making a total of £2.10 per month. That's the equivalent of just under £249 a month today. It was on board the RMS Olympic that Violet had her first incident at sea. At the time, the RMS Olympic was the largest luxury civilian liner in the world, and its size probably came in handy when, on September 20th, 1911, it collided with the British warship, the HMS Hawk. This collision was the least terrifying of Violet's shipwrecks, because both ships survived the encounter without any fatalities resulting from the collision. In 1914, the HMS Hawk would capsize after being torpedoed by a German submarine. Only 70 of its crew would survive, with 525 losing their lives, including the ship's captain, Hugh Williams. After the collision in 1911, Violet was persuaded by her friends to work on another ship. She was reluctant since she really enjoyed working on the Olympic, but eventually gave in to the peer pressure. She showed up to work in a brand new brown suit, and must have been struck by the size of her new ship when her horse-drawn cab pulled up to the dock. Unfortunately, the ship her friends were so eager to have Violet join them on was... the Titanic. Just over six months after her first shipwreck, Violet found herself in the midst of another one, perhaps the most famous of all time. In her memoirs, she wrote of the night it sank, in April of 1912, penning, quote, One awful moment of empty, misty blackness enveloped us in its loneliness. Then an unforgettable, agonizing cry went up from 1,500 despairing throats, a long wail, and then silence and our tiny craft tossing about at the mercy of the ice field." Unquote. Violet was ordered up on deck and watched as the first passengers were put into lifeboats. One of the ship's officers directed her to lifeboat number 16, and she would become one of the lucky survivors from that famous night. As the boat was being lowered, an officer handed her a baby and told her to look after it. She had no idea whose child it was, but she held it tight and kept it warm throughout the bone-chilling night until the Carpathia came to their rescue eight hours later. Upon rescue, a woman, hopefully the child's mother, grabbed the baby from Violet's arms and left with it. She was too frozen and numb from the night's trauma to resist or to ask any questions. More than 1,500 people died that night. You'd think after that, Violet would hang up her uniform and find a less hazardous profession somewhere on land. But she didn't. 
She kept working at sea, and in 1916 she switched out her attendance uniform for a nurse's uniform, and served as a nurse with the British Red Cross during World War I. She served on the HMHS Britannic, a White Star liner that had been converted into a hospital ship. The Britannic was sailing in the Aegean on the morning of November 21, 1916, with Violet Jessup on board. After only 55 minutes at sea, there was an explosion, and the HMHS Britannic was on its way to the bottom of the sea. It's not 100% certain what caused the explosion. Some say it was the curse of Violet Jessup. But in reality, it's likely the ship struck a naval mine set up by the Imperial German Navy near the Greek island of Kia. Violet described this as the most horrific of the shipwrecks she experienced, because this time she had to leap into the water where she nearly drowned. She was sucked under the ship's keel and hit her head as she was being pulled under, sustaining a skull fracture. Although she wouldn't know about the fracture until years later after visiting her doctor due to severe headaches. 30 people died in this wreck with 1,065 being rescued from the water and from lifeboats. The Britannic had been built with increased safety measures in mind, its builders having learned from its sister ship's wreck, that sister ship being the Titanic. This time, the lifeboats were utilized much more efficiently. Even after this, Violet still pursued a career at sea. She worked at sea for 42 years in all, seeing oceans and seas most of us will never get to in one lifetime. She even made it around the world, at least twice. She married in her 30s, but it was a short and unhappy marriage, and she soon found herself at sea once again. She retired, moved to Suffolk, and lived in a 16th century thatched cottage where she kept chickens and a well-tended garden. That sounds like a happy ending to me. There was one strange thing that happened after Violet retired. One night, her phone rang. When she picked up, there was a woman on the other line. She asked Violet if she had taken care of a baby the night the Titanic sank. Violet said that yes, she had. The woman then said that she had been that baby then hung up the phone and never called back again. Her biographer, a man named John Maxtone Graham, told her it was simply a prank call from a local child, but Violet insisted she had never told anyone the story about the baby. Violet Jessup passed away due to congestive heart failure in 1971 at the age of 83. She had survived three famous 20th century shipwrecks, been a part of history several times over, and remained, until her very last day, unsinkable. I've never seen a baboon driving an ox cart, so I can understand that when railway signalman James Edwin Wide saw Jack the Baboon steering his cart through a busy South African market in the late 1880s, he was a bit surprised. James was so taken with Jack the Baboon that he bought him right then, and Jack became his pet, 
his friend, and his personal assistant. The two became inseparable. This was a dream come true for James, who not long before had lost both of his legs in a terrible accident. James worked for the Cape Town Port Elizabeth Railway Service. They called him James Jumper Wide because he had been known for jumping between rail cars on the job. But it only took one failed jump for James's life to change forever. He fell, damaging both his legs beyond repair, and they both had to be amputated. Jack proved to be incredibly helpful to James. James lived a half mile from the train station, which was an extremely difficult commute for him. Jack made his trip to and from work much easier, because the baboon quickly learned how to push James in his wheelchair. Jack also helped James around the house. He could sweep floors, take out trash, help tend the garden, and at work, Jack proved to be so reliable he was put in charge of the coal yard keys. But it soon became apparent that Jack was capable of even more. He was incredibly intelligent and learned fast. Soon, Jack showed that he could be trusted with the signal box. When trains approached the station, they'd toot their whistles a specific number of times, which would tell the signalman which tracks to change. This was an incredibly important job, since if the signalman switched the wrong lever, they could inadvertently send the train down the wrong track. Jack watched James at his post, learned which number of whistles meant which lever needed to be pulled, and became so accurate that he was given a job as a signalman himself. This allowed James to sit in his cabin while Jack did all the work. Although it might seem strange that Jack was capable of learning how to do the job of a signalman, baboons have shown that they are capable of analytical judgment, at least to some degree. A study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology by Joel Fagot of the Center for Research in Cognitive Neuroscience in Marseille and Edward Wesserman and Michael Young of the University of Iowa detailed how two baboons were able to pick out various images on a computer screen in a comparative test to show if they were capable of determining whether sets of images were the same or different, something that takes analytical judgment to accomplish. The baboons were shown sets of 16 images, and by toggling a joystick, had 10 seconds to choose images similar to or different from those shown on the screen. A right choice meant a high musical tone and a banana-flavored treat. A wrong choice meant a low tone and no treat, with a seven-second timeout before the next set of images would appear. The baboons needed 7,000 trials before they could consistently distinguish between two image sets with 80% accuracy, whereas their human counterparts only needed around 100 trials. Before this, it was believed that chimpanzees were the only non-human primates that could demonstrate similar skills in comparative experiments. Granted, this study had a very small sample size of only two baboons, and small sample sizes are always something we should be careful of since we can't make broad determinations based on such a small sampling. But these two baboons were capable of showing some analytical skill, and although discriminating between relations of objects might not be the forte of these animals who split from us on the family tree about 30 million years ago, it does suggest that analytical reasoning is to some extent within their cognitive abilities, a precursor to human analytical thinking. Baboons have also shown the ability to understand numerical qualities. 
a study conducted by Jessica Cantlin, assistant professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester, showed that baboons possess basic quantitative abilities, meaning that they can understand the differences in numerical sums to some extent. According to an article from Science Daily, Cantlin, her research assistant Allison Barnard, postdoctoral fellow Kelly Hughes, and other colleagues at the University of Rochester and the Seneca Park Zoo in Rochester, New York, reported their findings in the open-access journal Frontiers in Comparative Psychology. The study tracked eight baboons in 54 separate trials set up to determine if the baboons could understand the difference between numbers. The researchers placed one to eight peanuts in each of two cups, varying the numbers in each container. The baboons received all the peanuts in the cup they chose, whether it was the cup with the most treats or not. The baboons guessed the larger quantity roughly 75% of the time on easy pairs when the relative difference between the quantities was large, for example 2 versus 7. But when the ratios were closer in number, like 6 versus 7, their accuracy fell to 55%. So they can't do your taxes, but they can understand basic quantity differentiation. So given that we know baboons are capable of understanding, to some extent, numbers, and that they have the ability to discern the difference between categorical objects, it's not all that crazy that Jack the Baboon, living in South Africa in the 1880s, was able to learn the differences in the number of whistles he heard and apply that to understanding which lever needed to be pulled in order to keep all the trains coming through the station on the right track. And things were running smoothly at the station. But Jack's career nearly came to an end one day due to a customer complaint. When one of the railway's posher passengers looked out the train window and saw that a baboon was manning the gears, they complained to the authorities. The authorities knew that they had to address the complaint. After all, it was weird that a baboon was managing the levers that determined where their trains went. The railway managers tested Jack's skills, and he passed their tests with flying colors. Railway superintendent George B. Howe wrote, Jack knows the signal whistles as well as I do, also every one of the levers. After passing his tests, Jack was given an official employee number and a paycheck. He was paid 20 cents a day and received half a bottle of beer every week. Jack worked the rails for the rest of his life, which was nine more years before he succumbed to tuberculosis in 1890. Yes, monkeys and apes can get and die from tuberculosis, just like we can. Today, Railway Jack is remembered fondly. There's even a children's book about him called Railway Jack, the true story of an amazing baboon. And he was amazing. In nine years at his job, Jack never once made a mistake. Every train that came through that station on Jack's watch went exactly where it was supposed to go for nine years. That's incredible. How many of us can say we've never made a mistake at our jobs? I certainly can't. It gives a whole new meaning to the term monkey business. That brings our episode on historical oddities to an end. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed hearing some of these weird history nuggets. I'll be back again in three weeks with some more historical oddities for you. 
In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. You can join the ranks of some of the best patrons in existence at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can now also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay awesome. And until we meet again, go make some history.